try my best today, folks. Um, Would you turn with me to Zechariah, chapter 6. We are at a bit of a transition point in this book of prophecy this morning. We have seen over the past weeks a series of seen a series of visions that the Lord has given the people through Zechariah, and we're transitioning to more of a, a verbal prophecy. But today, in the transition from the visions to the verbal, we have a sign act. You may wonder what a sign act is. Think of it as a dramatic illustration. Let me pray and ask the Lord to give us understanding, uh, for the Lord to speak to our heart through this dramatic illustration. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to your text, would you, would you open our, our hearts to see and hear and know the ways in which you are speaking to us as a collective body and as individuals, that we might see Jesus more clearly, that we might love him more deeply, and that we might obey him more fully. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Halem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. So, though at times, uh, the three branches of our government can seem frustrating, uh, our founding fathers had the wisdom and insight to understand that we needed three uh, separate, equal branches in order to uh, establish a separation of powers, separation of powers that would allow for a system of checks and balances within our government. Now I say that the Founding Fathers had that wisdom. They were influenced by other political philosophers and 
quite possibly by their own experience of being under a king. They understood very clearly the need to divide power because too much power in any one man can be dangerous. Even the best, even the noblest among us is tempted to serve self. Though they may not have understood the theology behind it, uh, the Founding Fathers had some sense of original sin. (laughs) So, by our Constitution, we have an executive branch, we have a legislative branch, and we have a judicial branch. Yet, with that separation of powers, that system of checks and balances, you and I still find ourselves desperate for good leaders, for noble men and women who will serve our country. We long to find someone to believe in. Hold that thought for a few moments. Now, if you've had middle school civics class, You understand this system of checks and balances. You understand this basic framework of our national government. But the truth is, the nation of Israel also had a system of checks and balances. The nation of Israel had a similar system. There was, by God's law, the office of the priest and the office of the king. We've seen in our time in Zechariah that that Joshua was fulfilling the office of the priest as the high priest over these returned exiles. And Zerubbabel was fulfilling the office of the king as the governor of Jerusalem. The visions that we've seen and Zechariah have been meant in their time frame to encourage these office holders and the people under them. But now we see that what we've seen somewhat throughout, the Lord is very clearly pointing to a new administration. I say this is a sign act. The Lord is... Is, is telling Zechariah to act out a prophecy. And it begins, as we open the text, with the Lord sending Zechariah to go visit some of the recently returned exiles. Now, I'll just confess to you, I'm somewhat cloudy on a few of these details and the, and the time frame that exists. Uh, for example, I, I don't know if the Lord is sending Zechariah first to go visit these three returned exiles to grab, uh, to receive from them these precious metals of silver and gold, and, and then to go from them to Josiah, who will fashion them into a crown. Or if these three returned exiles are staying in the home of Josiah, ultimately it doesn't matter. The result is the same. These exiles who have returned from Babylon, who have returned from afar, have brought gifts. And those gifts 
will be used to make a crown. And that crown will be a sign. Symbolically, the crown is an interwoven crown made of two precious metals, silver and gold. But most important was what was to happen next. The Lord told Zechariah to go and take this crown and place it on Joshua's head. Now, we may miss the importance of what is happening there, but for the people of that day, this would have been a shocking act for Zechariah to place a crown on the head of the priest. Imagine this January on Inauguration Day. Whoever wins the election, imagine if on that day, that cold day in January, as they stood outside of the Capitol prepared to take the oath of office if they turned the tide and then the president-elect administered the oath of office to the chief justice of the Supreme Court. He would be shocked. He would be shocked for a variety of reasons, none the least of which was that the Supreme Court chief justice has his own job. He has his own job provided for in the Constitution. Similarly, the high priest did not wear the crown. The high priest was not meant to fulfill the office of a king. He had his own role to play among God's people. Provided for in the law of God and vice versa. The king did not fulfill the office of the priest. If you look earlier in the Old Testament, anytime the king tried, it did not go well. King Saul was impatient to get on with things, waiting on Samuel, and he decided to go ahead and offer sacrifices. Because of his disobedience, the Lord removed him from the throne. Later, King Uzziah would grow proud, and he'd enter into the temple to fulfill the role of a priest, and the Lord struck him down with leprosy. The two offices were not meant to be united in one person, but now the Lord has sent Zechariah to place the crown on Joshua's head. And as he did so, he was pointing to something new. He was pointing to the merging of two offices and it would have shocked the people, but the Lord did not stop with that visual. He then told Zechariah to speak. And in his speech, he added context. I take us back to verses 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is the branch. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Do you remember in the visions that we've looked to? In the fourth vision, Joshua 
was the priest. But here, Zechariah declares him the branch. In the fifth vision, Zerubbabel was the ruler. But here, Zechariah declares the ruler the branch. Also in the fifth vision, we saw the image of two olive trees that we said signified two separate offices and two men fulfilling them. But when we put all of this together, we understand that when Zechariah says, Behold the man... He is pointing to another man. He is pointing to one to come. To the Messiah. You see, it is only the Messiah who can simultaneously fulfill the offices of priest and king. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus tells us that all of the law, all of the prophets points to Him. And we see it so clearly here in Zechariah 6 that this text, and therefore all of the law and all of the prophets that have come before are pointing directly to Jesus, the greater Joshua. Jesus is the only one. He is the God-man who could do both. But why this language of offices? It, it, it feels so complicated. Are we trying to overcomplicate the Scripture? Well, first of all, let's understand that this is God's Word speaking to His people. He's telling us something. He's telling us something with these offices of priest and king. Actually, I believe that this is more than a biblical civics lesson. <laughs> that... Uh, Maybe our confession of faith helps us understand with some simplicity why these offices are important to us. The shorter catechisms of our faith help. They ask the question, how does Christ fulfill the office of a priest? And then in answer to their own question, says Christ fulfills the office of a priest in His once offering up of Himself to God as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making constant intercession for us. What did the priests do? What was the purpose of the priesthood? The priesthood stood between the people and God. And in standing in between the people and God, the priesthood was meant to offer sacrifice on behalf of the people and to offer intercession before the Lord, to pray for the people. What did Jesus do? He didn't offer a sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. And it was not a sacrifice that had to be offered again and again and again. It was a one-time, once and for all, effective sacrifice for all of God's people. Jesus fulfilled the office of a priest by becoming the sacrifice for us. And yet His work as a priest was not finished. Because this very day, this very moment, Jesus sits bodily at the right hand of God the Father praying for us. He continues in His work as priest offering intercession before God the Father on our behalf. How beautiful is this that the prophecy we read in Zechariah is to this day being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That is His work as a priest. But there's more. His work as a king. We go back to the catechism. How does Christ fulfill the office of a king? 
Christ fulfills the office of a king in making us His willing subjects. In ruling and defending us and restraining and conquering all His and our enemies. Again, what does a king do? A king rules and a king protects. Now, we know that earthly kings are tempted, even the noblest among them, to serve themselves through that office. But our Lord Jesus Christ is a good King. He rules and protects and does it perfectly, sacrificially, and effectively. He brings us to a willing obedience by removing the seed of our diseased heart. He brings us graciously under His rule and He conquers all our enemies. Jesus is the priest and king. Jesus is the one that this sign act is pointing to. In this, the Lord is building up and encouraging His people of that day and of ours, pointing them and us beyond the temporal realities of the day to their and our true source of hope to the God-man. That's the visual element of this sign act. But there's more to it, because Zechariah would, at the Lord's instruction, perform this act... Uh, the visual part of it, he would also add a verbal element. Speaking of the work of this good king. He identified the true temple. Beyond identifying the branch, Zechariah declares what the branch will do. Behold the man. He will build the temple. Now back to the visions that we have seen. In the fifth vision, we heard explicitly that Zerubbabel, a kingly figure, would build the temple. Zerubbabel would place the top stone on the temple. But here, it is equally explicitly said that the branch will build the temple. There must be a different temple at play. To understand this different temple, we go to the New Testament. In John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus is confronting the money changers in the temple. And He says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. They're scratching their head trying to figure out what in the world He's talking about. And John makes it clear. The temple He speaks of is the temple of His body. The epistles go on to be more clear, offering a complementary picture of the true temple. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we're told that it's the people of God who are being built into the temple where Peter would write, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is saying that if you are in Christ, you are the raw materials of the temple. And then Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, goes on to describe the body of Christ in this way, in verses 19-22, through 22, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens 
with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. On the wall above my desk, the place where I study the Word of God, the place where I write sermons, on that wall uh, is a piece of artwork. A mixed medium piece that Anna made and gave to me on the day of my ordination to the ministry of the Word. The the artwork is uh, contains an image in the center. It's an image of a, of a church building adorned with a cross. Around the building are a series of Bible verses, verses from beloved hymns, quotes from mentors that are meant to remind me that this work is a spiritual work. But as you look at this work of art and you focus on the center, which appears to be a church building, you quickly understand that it is almost as if you are peering at the building through another structure. There are layers as you go outward and you see a structure that you cannot comprehend in full in this work of art, but there are bricks cemented together forming this larger structure and woven through the bricks are a series of Bible verses and hymns and and then written on a few of these bricks are the initials of our family members. But there are two more bricks with images on them. One is the image of a crown. One is the image of a cross. Jesus, our King. Jesus, our sacrificial Lamb. I'm preaching this sermon some nine years later. But Anna captured the vision of this text so beautifully as she prepared that work of art because it is a picture of the true temple of God built by the branch. And that true temple of God is not a building. It is the church, the body, the bride of Christ that is being built into a spiritual dwelling place for God by the Spirit. If you are in Christ, you have been redeemed by Jesus. You have been and are being formed by Jesus. And you are being cemented together by Jesus. So that we together are the true temple of God. The true temple that our Savior has built and is building. This is the temple that is pointed to in the sign act of Zechariah 6. You, us, together, 
It is a beautiful, symbolic pointer in this text to Jesus and to His body, the church. That's the meaning of this text. But what do we do with it? Is it fair to ask the question, so what? This is more, again, more than a biblical civics lesson. It is meant to encourage and build up the people of God. So, what do we take from this? Well, first, we find our hope in the branch. Are you tempted now to live and die by the prospects of the upcoming election? We are in a moment in time where we find ourselves in this world stuck in pandemic. Our nation is divided over race. Our economy is hanging by a thread. And with all of that, we're tempted to place our hope in whatever is going to happen in November. Listen, and In every moment in history, people have been tempted to place their hope in a person. (laughs) Waiting on some hero to to rise up and and answer all of our problems. Conversely, in every moment of history, we have also been tempted to slip into undue despair over a person. This moment is no different. The people of Zechariah's day, they were in desperate need of leadership as they were seeking to rebuild a city, rebuild the temple. Now, listen, God-given leadership is important. But in this sign act, the Lord is bringing hope to His people by changing their perspective, by changing their horizon beyond the day into eternity. Friends, whatever happens in November, Scripture tells us two things. That we are called to respect the authorities that the Lord has sovereignly placed over us, but we're also called to look beyond them to find our hope in the branch. So what does that look like for us to respect and look beyond? Well, it means that we as God people engage in the public sphere, but we don't despair over what is happening in the public sphere. And we, as the body of Christ, do not let it separate us. We're called to live in a Christ-ordained, Christ-enabled union with God and with one another. So as we consider what is going on in the public sphere, be aware. Be aware of the, the words you post on social media. Be aware of the bumper stickers you put on your car or what you wear in your t-shirt or what you just say in open speech. Because what unites us is a body He's not a leader or a, partic- or a particular political party. And if you for some reason think that one person or one party has the lock 
on God's kingdom, you've got the wrong perspective. Be aware. Be aware and know that we, even in the church, are tempted to look for hope in earthly spheres. Yet through Zechariah, the Lord is lifting the people's gaze and their horizon. And in the New Testament, it is almost as if in the book of Hebrews, He's offering a commentary on this passage. In chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, we see now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. The Lord is telling us the branch. The righteous king and priest is Jesus Christ, so let us find our hope in Him. But also, let's find our place in the branch, in His body. Zechariah was sent to build up the people of God. I have been amazed as we have spent time in Zechariah, the the point of emphasis that the Lord makes through this prophetic book, the covenant family, the covenant people. And once again in this text, the Lord is calling the covenant people to be the covenant people. What that means is this, that if you are a part of Christ's body, commit to His body, to one another, in loving union with Christ and with each other. Remember those bricks. There is mortar cementing them to one another. Built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And in this text, He points to all of this by pointing them and us to the true temple. Commit to the body. Commit to one another. Word-based fellowship and prayer for one another. But friends, there's another shocking twist in this text. Because the Lord is speaking to returned Jewish exiles in Jerusalem. But through Zechariah, he tells them that this true temple will also be built by those who are far off. It does not merely refer to those remaining exiles in Babylon. He's speaking of the Gentiles. Of the people who in this day would have seemed like the worst kind of godless pagans who were not part of this covenant community. But through this text, the Lord is pointing to a fulfillment of the covenant community that is not built on genetics. It's built on the Redeemer. We heard in Acts chapter 2 in our assurance of of grace that the promise that God makes, the promise of the covenant community, the the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ was not just for them, not just for the Jews, but was also for their children and for those who were far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. So as we now here find our place in the branch, in His body, we must know that this branch, this body does not merely consist of those like us. 
that God in His beautiful creativity and wisdom has, has created all nations, all tribes, all tongues in His image. And if we are to worship Him in His fullness, we must embrace those who are of different backgrounds, of different social statuses, of different races. What does it look like for you to embrace those who are far off? What does it look like for you to listen and know their heart? What does it look like for you to know that the person who does not look like you was also created in the image of God. What does it look like for you to share the hope of the true branch with them and join with them in family? As we take our place in the branch, we commit to one another and we embrace those who are far off. All of this is captured in the mention of the council of peace that exists between this priesthood and this kingship. One author wrote of this council of peace saying that it is not just that Christ unifies these offices harmoniously, but that from this union He works peace, the very shalom of God for those who enter His reign. So under His reign, we obey His voice. Were you listening? And I read the text. And when I came to this last verse. And this shall come to pass. If you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. When you heard that. Did you wonder if this promise of the branch was conditional? Did you wonder if this promise was at risk? Jeremiah 33 speaks of the branch. The fulfillment of the greater David in Jeremiah 33. The greater David, the king who would also be priest. And it begs the question, can... Can we, by our disobedience, break God's covenant with the branch? In Jeremiah 33, verses 20 through 22, the Lord says through Jeremiah that if you can break His covenant with the day and with the night, then you can break His covenant with the branch. In other words, if you can keep the sun from coming up in the morning, then... You can break this covenant. Guess what, friends? It ain't happening. Your disobedience will not stop the fulfillment of God's Word. It is true and lasting and it is finished. He has fulfilled this Word in the branch. He has and is building His body. Our disobedience will not, cannot stop the fulfillment because the promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in the redemption offered to His people through His atoning sacrifice on the cross. The church 
will be established and He will conquer His enemies, including His chosen ones. He is the King. And His grace is a conquering grace. A grace that conquers as He removes the seed of our diseased heart and gives us a new heart. Thereby, procuring our obedience, the evidence of His grace in our lives then is our obedience. The only question for us in the fulfillment of this prophecy is will it be experientially true for you? Will it be experientially true for you? And though our God provides for obedience, obedience is required nonetheless. So what is the obedience spoken of here in Zechariah 6.15? Again, the New Testament helps us to understand it. In John chapter 6, verse 29, the people ask Jesus, what is the work of the Lord that we must be doing? And Jesus answered this, the work that the Lord requires of you is simply this, believe in the One whom He has sent. To obey the voice of the Lord, as we see in Zechariah 6.15, is to obey the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to repent and believe in Him, knowing that there is never a work that you could do to earn your place in the branch. His call to you as His children is obedience to His grace. is to repent of your sin. To repent of your desire for self. To repent of your dependence on lesser hopes. Repent and believe in the true priest and king, Jesus Christ. In Him, you will find the certainty of life abundant and life eternal. Lord, Make Your promises true in us experientially. Remove our disobedient hearts. By Your grace, draw us in. Give us a fidelity to Your Word, to Your promises, and help us to see the beauty of life in the branch. Do this, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen.